Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can hear us beyond the FM dial. Yes, I promise. You can find us live in, uh, in the moment at RadioNorthland.org. And if you missed it for whatever reason, you know, life happens sometimes, especially this time of year. You can go back to that page, to the Wrestling Memories page within the page at RadioNorthland.org. And you can give us uh, this episode a listen. And you can give, give a listen to over seven years of classic wrestling memories and and now interviews. It's a, a good little thing. You can also check us out live too on the TuneIn Radio app. I think I got all the plugs out of the way. Glenn Braggett with you flying solo this week, but you know what? That doesn't mean you're going to hear me talking all by myself for the next 60 minutes. I'm going to try to do as little talking as possible because I've booked myself a main event, uh, definitely a main event guest if there ever was, because a lot of uh, us up here in AWA country in northwestern Minnesota and eastern North Dakota we watched and watched until the end of the run and we remember uh, and I remember this too I mean this was the talk of my Sunday school this was the talk of my uh, junior high school when this guy came in along with Pat Tanaka and defeated uh, the Midnight Rockers who we thought were too cool for school oh my god these guys just kind of came in I mean it was uh, a big moment for us and that kind of just brings out the kid in me this week because I'm able to welcome this man who did more than just work for the AWA. He had a career that took him all over the territories uh, from Texas All-Star. Uh, he was working in Memphis. He ended up in the WWF. We're going to talk all about his career. Uh, yes, it is an honor to have him on. A man who, uh, you know, if, if things uh, would have went uh, differently, might have forsaken wrestling altogether. So this is a two, I, I would say a two-sport athlete. We're gonna, And we're so uh, just genuinely uh, pleased to have him on and, and taking some time out of his uh, busy schedule in life. Uh, it's an honor to welcome Hard Rock Paul Diamond to Northwestern Minnesota and Eastern North Dakota in the interweb and wrestling memories then and now. Welcome, my friend. Well, my pleasure, my pleasure. Great to be here and uh, be able to have a chat with you. Yes, yes, yes. We've been kind of working off and on, you know, kind of life just, you know, happens. And, and, and sometimes it's just hard to uh, synchronize our, our watches, if you will. So this has kind of been uh, one of those things that we we're finally able to lay down. And I and I, I had to let you know that, you know, this is a radio program that covers a, a part of, you know, an area that you were definitely familiar with and you spent a good part of your career. And if even if we went a little bit further outside of our listening area, we're not too far from uh, Manitoba. Those are spots that you knew definitely you knew well. So I figured this is going to be a good fit for our listeners and yourself to share some of those memories of your life uh, in uh, pro wrestling and even before that. Sure, absolutely. In fact, uh, you were mentioning Manitoba. I, uh, uh, you know, spent, uh, well, my junior high and high school years in Winnipeg. So uh, having moved uh, from Croatia, my first um, bit of wrestling that I saw on television was actually AWA, uh, you know, uh, Vern Gagne's uh, promotion. So that's what I got used to uh, watching at first. I had no idea, of course, until Vince took over the world. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that that was kind of, you know, like I, I grew up about 20 miles from the border and, you know, that was my first pro wrestling uh, that I got exposed to as a kid. I would say I was probably about five, six years old, around 1982. So I was watching, you know, Bockwinkle in his day and Mad Dog Vachon. So, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I didn't, you know, kids had comic books and other things, you know, people love that stuff and that was all well and good. But my first superheroes, besides the Kiss when I was that age, was pro wrestlers, like the Mad Dog. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, same, same year. Like I said, you know, as I said, uh, you know, Bachwinkle and, 
Larry the Axe Henning, and of course Vern was still in his uh, heyday, and the High Flyers, and uh, all those guys. Yeah, you really kind of came of age at a pretty good time for uh, pro wrestling up in up in Winnipeg, especially with with Vern Gagne, because I mean that was still strong in the territories. I mean, you know, what you get maybe a once a month show that would come through, and you'd have the television to back it up. It was just you know you think about those days when when Winnipeg wasn't just a, a once a year or maybe twice a year if you're lucky these days. It was uh, part of the hub of of, uh, of Vern's territory. Right. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But you know what? We, I wanted to talk about you. You, you mentioned that you uh, you you were in you moved to Winnipeg. Uh, your life before that was very interesting in and of itself because you were not born in in Canada. You actually emigrated emigrated to um, from Croatia. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what led you and your family to Croatia and uh, just kind of uh, tell us the story uh, a little bit about your life and, and getting uh, into eventually uh, up to Winnipeg. Sure. Actually, you know, uh, back, uh, well, I was born and it, it was actually, uh, the country was actually Yugoslavia back then. Uh, you know, it was a communist country. Croatia was, uh, one of the states. Uh, the others in Yugoslavia were Serbia, Bosnia, Macedonia, Slovenia, uh, and, uh, Montenegro. And so that, uh, consisted, that's what made up Yugoslavia. And, uh, I guess, you know, uh, my father just kind of sort of, uh, foresaw what was going to happen at that time. Uh, President Tito who, you know, who ran Yugoslavia for many years, but, uh, I think everybody kind of knew once he, uh, passed away, you know, didn't know exactly where things were going to go. And uh, that's uh, my father, you know, kind of, we just tried to uh, get him out of there before uh, things really broke apart. And and, a good thing that uh, we did that because, you know, obviously early 90s is when everything kind of fell apart in Yugoslavia. And there was the civil war for uh, a number of years. And uh, all these states, of course, now are their own countries. But uh, no, just I am glad that we uh, got out of there in 1974. Um, you know, I was just uh, almost 13 years old, and you can only imagine uh, leaving a country and all your friends and everything you've ever known, and, uh, you know, a few days later, you're in another country where you can't speak the language, don't know anybody, uh, and uh, it just <laughs> was not a whole lot of fun, you know. You know how kids are uh, mean and mm-hmm. Uh, bullying and stuff. So I had to deal with all that uh, early on. When did you really start to find some sort of comfort, though, you know, from making that transition, uh, you know, from your, your home country and, and, you know, getting through all of the stuff and, and all of the hassles and harassment that you had to get through, you know, from being you know a kid your age and trying to adjust and trying to find your way through the language? When did you start to really find comfort that, you know, you could start to adjust and feel a little bit more at ease, at least to a point where you could start understanding things there? Well, you know, uh, as far as the language, it didn't take that long. Uh, I had, uh, you know, learned some English uh, in Yugoslavia in school, and then uh, just, you know, kids kind of pick up the language pretty quickly. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I've always done has been involved in sports. And, and, uh, you know, back in Yugoslavia, uh, of course, soccer and basketball, I mean, those are the things that everybody played. Uh, You didn't need much, you know, other than a ball and, and for soccer just uh, 
you know, place with some grass or even dirt. So it didn't matter. Uh, so, you know, what uh, kind of uh, got me uh, be able to fit in once I got into Canada uh, was once I found uh, a place to play soccer. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, I had excelled. Uh, you know, soccer wasn't uh, really a huge thing, in, especially not in Canada. I mean, you know, obviously hockey was the uh, thing and still is in Canada. So uh, I excelled at soccer uh, as a goalkeeper. And so that's when I kind of, you know, started to fit in, uh, you know, with uh, uh, some friends. Uh, and it wasn't really as far as school goes, you know, in Canada, um, high school sports are not uh, very good. Uh, just uh, not something that's done. So I, I found a club team and, and uh, you know, started uh, playing soccer and uh, a uh, coach that was actually, he was Scottish of Scottish descent and uh, he sort of helped me uh, with a lot of things uh, as I got a little bit older, you know, to uh, be able to uh, find a uh, college that I could go to and a uh, soccer scholarship and stuff. But really, yeah, the sports was what uh, got me to fit in because without that, I'm not sure where uh, things would have uh, wound up. Yeah, it's just such a universal thing. Like you said, just get a ball out, whether it's, uh, you know, you're throwing it into a hoop or you're kicking it into a goal. I mean, you get can get people involved and get kids to play. And it really did. Yeah, you really definitely excelled at that. I mean, getting a scholarship, getting some schooling in from, especially from being up in Canada, like you said, with uh, it, it not quite at the level at some of these spots here in the States as far as competitive sports go. But you uh, definitely, did, did that was that something that, you know, really felt good i mean just you know to have you know you you excel at this i mean was it something because i mean soccer is really in your blood and your family's blood yeah yeah for sure uh my father had uh, played soccer back in yugoslavia for uh 18 years and uh you know as as long as i can remember that's all i ever wanted to do and uh, i was determined that regardless of what anybody said or tried to you know tell me uh, I was going to play professional soccer no matter what. And so, you know, once kind of things started um, going in the right direction there with uh, this coach in Canada, uh, you know, I really kind of started to realize that, uh, you know, some things might happen. But regardless, like I said, I was not going to give up uh, no matter what. No, and, and you, your persistence paid off because uh, it was uh, right out of college here. Uh, you ended up getting drafted to play professional soccer. I mean, it goes beyond just, you know, getting into the collegiance of it. You were actually there with something that paid you per game. This was something that's, uh, you know, not a lot of people get, you know. A, a professional sport is not just something you walk into. This was something that, again, you, your goalkeeping, you earned it, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, in fact... Uh the 1980 North American Soccer League draft, um, I was the uh, sixth pick overall in the first round uh, of that draft, drafted by the Calgary Boomers, which actually was just a, a new team in Canada. And, uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you would think you hear first round, sixth pick overall, and, oh, my God, money, and uh-huh. it's just not so. <laughs> Back then, uh, North American Soccer League, uh, well, it was called North American Soccer League, so you had to have at least uh, some uh, Canadian and or American players, but not very many. 
Uh, and in fact, of the 11 players that you have to have on the field at all times, uh, they required four of them to be, uh, you know, Canadian, uh, well, North American, period. And so anybody, you know, the, the, the kids that were drafted, such as myself, out of college or high school or whatever, <laughs> that, that first round uh, uh, pick uh, translated to a $1,500 signing bonus and $1,500 uh, a month salary. So, but you know what, heck, I got to be, I got to say I was a professional soccer player and probably at that point I would have done it for nothing. But uh, yeah, I just, it wasn't about the money, but uh, boy, I sure loved, uh, you know, doing that and having the opportunity to be a professional. You know, any you know, I have, I just have a picture in my mind of you, you know, how they do these NBA, how these drafts become such a spectacle, whether it's a football or basketball or even hockey, uh, everybody, you know, they got to have the, all this drama and hoopla. I could just see you putting on a hat, holding one of those in, you know, just those large checks with the $1,500 on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That would have got me real far and actually didn't, but no, I, I mean, I, you know, I loved it. Just the fact that, uh, I got to be a professional athlete in any sport, man, it was great. Yeah, yeah, and you get you're young, you got to just do something that you really loved, and you ended up, uh, you know, and this really kind of helped, and it was almost a happenstance as far as uh, your, you know, moving into your next career. Uh, you you moved off, uh, moved on from the Boomers, and you ended up down in Tampa Bay with the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Now, I guess we could say the rest they say is history, but I want to lead, have you tell us the story about how your soccer career somehow segued into what became pro wrestling uh, and Tampa definitely has a, a big part in this yes absolutely uh, so after that first uh, year with the uh, Calgary Boomers uh, and that was the only season that the only season that they were actually in existence uh, the team folded uh, after that one uh, year and uh, you know just as any other they have a dispersal draft where other teams have a chance to, you know, pick up the players uh, from the team that folded. And uh, it just happened that uh, the uh, general manager that was in Calgary had moved on to Tampa, and uh, I guess he, you know, liked what he saw. And uh, so I was picked up in the dispersal draft uh, to uh, come and play for the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Uh, which then lasted another three years, and uh, finally in 1984, uh, the North American Soccer League as a whole folded. So the, you know, the, these guys just ran out of money. They were bringing a bunch of guys from overseas and paying them uh, ridiculous amounts of money, and uh, it just uh, didn't work out. So yeah, the North American Soccer League folded in '84. Uh, I, however, did uh, want nothing to do with a real job. So, <laughs> um, and it just happened that uh, the equipment manager for the Tampa Bay Rowdies uh, somehow during that last season had uh, hooked up, well, he had met Barry Windham, and, uh, you know, every Tuesday night at the uh, Armory in Tampa, they had uh, Florida Championship Wrestling. And so he was able to get us tickets, and I started going every Tuesday and watching uh, professional wrestling more closely than before. And I realized, man, you know, I always figured I was a pretty good athlete. Uh, I, I think I could do this. Uh, and so that's what kind of, you know, started me thinking in that direction. And then, 
I was working as an assistant manager at a Gold's Gym in Tampa, and I happened to run into Joe Malenko. Uh, just kind of happenstance, and we started talking, and he mentioned to me that his father, Boris, who was, man, what a great talent, uh, at a wrestling school, and I guess, as they say, the rest is history. I started attending uh, Malenko's wrestling school, and I am so grateful that, uh, you know, that's who I got trained by. Uh, I don't know that there's very many wrestling schools, especially uh, now or ever, really, that, that uh, uh, will prepare you uh, better for a uh, career in professional wrestling than the Malenko's did. And, uh, yeah, within a year, um, you know, Boris, with the help of another gentleman, Ron Slinker, helped me to get my first uh, full-time wrestling uh, job uh, in, uh, uh, I had to move to Atlanta. It was on uh, TBS that uh, Ollie Anderson was running uh, NWA back then. This was... uh, The championship wrestling from Georgia. Yes, correct. Gordon Stoley, Gordon Stoley was still doing the uh, commentary, and uh, you know they would run uh, some stuff uh, one week in Georgia, and then uh, uh, odd weeks we would fly up to like Midwest and uh, run uh, Ohio and uh, Indiana and uh, you know uh, Michigan uh, places like that. But yeah, so that was my first. Uh, wrestling uh gig as you might say that i actually made a living at mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you know this championship wrestling from georgia you know that was basically at the time because you know with vince having bought out uh, the original georgia championship wrestling this was kind of the lifeline for uh, fans you know not only in atlanta but the fans that have watched for years on the superstation it you know this was kind of the the basic thing to kind of keep them tidied over. So what was the the experience like working those studio television matches? I mean, you had Gordon Soley, you had Ole, they brought in an array of talent, but what was your memories of, of working uh, there at, at uh, Techwood Drive and some of the alternative places around that loop? Because what you guys basically did was was take on some of the, the, uh, the towns that were originally Georgia Championship. That's true, that's true. You know what, I mean, as I said, this is the first, uh, first, full-time job that I had obviously you know I had uh, no experience and so I was just grateful to have gotten uh, a place where I could work regularly and uh, you know uh, man learning about the business because uh, here I was green as grass and uh, I mean not knowing a a whole lot about wrestling Uh, just you know trained for several months and really didn't know a whole lot about it so I was really fortunate that, you know, and there were some guys that uh, were there that uh, had uh, experience in the business that I worked with early on, and I didn't care about, you know, putting anybody over or whatever. I just wanted to learn and and be able to work regularly and uh, make a paycheck. But, yeah, yeah, like you were saying, some of the names, you know, uh, Bob Roop, uh, Ronnie Garvin, of course, Oli, you know, Buzz Sawyer, brother brett wayne uh, i mean there was uh, ron star i mean so there was you know guys with some experience and uh yeah i, I learned from those guys uh, uh of course uh it, that didn't last that long because i had uh, went to tampa uh one week uh you know for a few days off and when i came back uh come to find out the crockett's had bought out Oli. 
so now I walk in and all these guys uh, from, uh, you know, Charlotte are there at the television taping. And, uh, I mean, they got all their guys, they got plans. And, uh, of course, you know, they gave me one more month and uh, sent me packing. And then you ended up, uh, I mean, you moved on. I mean, I want to talk about a, a part of your career that you spent uh, working your, another another major territory was uh, out in Texas, the Texas All-Star Wrestling. I caught wind of this when I was a kid when I had a, a brother, one of my older brothers was serving in Fort, or was at Fort Hood, was stationed there. So he remembers yeah, that. Yeah. So I want to talk how you got into uh, Tex- the Texas All-Star area, what your memories are of Fred Barron, because uh, he was a very, again, he's a promoter, man. He's an interesting person. I mean, what promoter is a really but could you talk a little yeah. bit how you made it to texas and and talk about that area and, and working under that banner well you know uh again so now i'm left jobless in atlanta and uh luckily uh as i said uh, the, the one guy that uh got me books in atlanta ron slinker also had a connection with uh texas I, okay so the, the booker at that time was buck robley and uh you know so and they they you know texas all-star wrestling uh fred they just kind of took over from the blanchards and uh you know the place was sort of struggling and they needed talent uh so that's how i wound up out there uh however you know come to find out once i got there uh they were only uh running like three or four uh nights a week and uh, not drawing very well at all. But, uh, you know, Fred uh, was willing to, you know, spend a little bit of money to try and uh, create some more business. Uh, it, you know, I was there almost a year, but nothing really ever took off other than, of course, it's there where shortly after I had got there, uh, a young kid just returned from uh, Bill Watts' territory, and he was... Uh, originally from uh, San Antonio, Shawn Michaels. Oh, so, a- absolutely. See, I remember that very well. I mean, this was, again, I, I my brother sent me these photos of, of, of a show on, on Fort Hood that you guys did, and he yeah. had pictures, and he had lined up one with you got you and Shawn doing a, a, an action shot. I mean, it was old-day uh, camera, so it was as good as it could get, but he's like, who is that? I asked him, who, who's that? That's the American Express. That's uh, Paul and, and Sean. So, and, and I, I remember, you know, now, thankfully, because of YouTube and WWE Network, people can watch some of that old uh, Mid-South stuff. I've been watching a lot of that around 85 when Sean was working uh, uh, mm-hmm. some of the TV and you know he was just like an apt learner and by the time he got to Texas also that was kind of another part of his education as well as yours so you guys were very young and the way you guys were put together was such a you know a great thing too another part of that wonderful part of your career that when things just happen if you just let them happen yeah you know and, and uh, so both of us you know were very uh, well athletic one but also we were committed uh, to wanting to learn about the business uh, as much as we could, uh, as fast as we could. So, you know, we were uh, riding to the towns and riding back. We'd always be discussing, you know, what we could do, what we could do better, what went wrong at night. I mean, just everything you can imagine. I could tell, I mean, you know, Sean, he had a goal in life and, uh, he and and that was to actually uh not stay in a tag team situation but uh you know to make it as a singles wrestler well uh you know we had been thrown together there for a while as uh the american force and 
after I'd been there nearly a year, Sean got the opportunity to move on to the AWA, and he thought, you know, this was going to be his uh, shot at uh, being a, a single star. And of course, we know what happened there. He wound up, you know, they wound up uh, tagging him up with Marty Jannetty, and the uh, Midnight Rockers were born. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, shortly after that, I'd left. Uh, Texas and uh, uh, moved on to uh, Tennessee, where, of course, eventually I would meet my uh, partner, uh, Pat Tanaka. Mm-hmm. One more thing before we move on to your, your, your time in, in Memphis with the CWA. Did you have a chance, were you around in the same time at Texas All-Star and had an opportunity to be around uh, guys like Bruiser Brody or Gary Hart, or was were they gone at that, that point in time? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I, I didn't know uh, Bruiser Brody, but he, had, he they brought him in every now and then, uh, you know. Uh, but, uh, it, 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 you know, this the promotion just didn't draw very well. And I, I really can't tell you that, uh, you know, just what I can remember of Bruiser Brody, uh, I, I don't know that he really wanted to be there and just kind of seemed like uh he wanted to get in the ring and get his money and be gone that's what kind of the idea that i said but yeah it just wasn't drawing and uh, i mean i know he's a a legend and uh you know but um, from the short time that i was there and that i saw him come in a few times uh i just just didn't seem like he had head was was his head was all the way in it. It was just kind of just no, go in and get no, out. No, yeah, no. I think it was just you know. I think uh, Gary Hart was his connection, and you know they probably got him a good deal to you know come in and, and you know put in his time and and get out. So I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but you got out. I mean, you went over to Memphis, and 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 what was you know making that move over uh, to, to Memphis, working for, for Lawler and Jarrett with their uh, interesting uh, booking styles as well. I mean, you must. I mean, the first time you kind of popped in through, I you know you you weren't right there together with Pat right away. You ended up working with guys like Joe LaDuke, and you were on Memphis TV, and yeah. you know the whole thing. Tell us about about Memphis early on, walking into that territory. They had the famous TV. They had all this good stuff. I want to hear some uh, Memphis stories if you got the opportunity. To tell them. Well, you know, Memphis was actually, it was great uh, as far as, you know, being able to learn. And they, you know, had lost uh, any uh, experienced talent, obviously, to Vince. And so they were uh, willing to bring in young guys. And uh, like you said, their interesting uh, booking style. I mean, they would do all kinds of crazy angles and stuff. You mentioned Joe LaDuke. You know, uh, Joe being uh, Canadian as well, and myself being a Canadian citizen. So we did an angle, I think, the summer of '86, where uh, you know, I'm not sure if you had seen it, but it's it's on there. You can find it in the CWA uh, tapes. But uh, you know, Joe wanted us to be a Canadian tag team, and in order to be a tag team, uh, you had to you know look the same and since he was bald he wanted to you know cut my hair or shave my head actually yes, yes. and so we kind of went back and forth and i said no i don't uh, you know i appreciate the offer but i don't think so i just think i'll keep my hair and he winds up knocking me out and you know uh shaving my head and uh, just butchering my hair and so that was the angle and for that summer like for 
several weeks. We had worked each other, you know, every night from starting the regular matches to chain matches and dog collar matches and everything you can imagine. So that, that that's one thing about, you know, Tennessee One, that you, you got to uh, a chance to work programs with people. You got to work all kinds of different matches, um, angles. So, no, I, I love being there, you know, and you, you got to work at least, six days a week. Again, the money was nothing to write home about, but man, I was there for a couple of years and I learned so much there. And uh, of course, that's where I met Pat. So everything, you know, kind of uh, happened for a reason. And, you know, of course, being there is just, you know, learning a whole lot of uh, things about the business and, uh, you know, to work different matches and such. Uh, and that would help me later on. Oh yeah, most most definitely. And you know, I want to go back to the, to the TV of just how you know the how how much power they had with with ratings and stuff through the years. You hear about just how many people, how many television sets were tuned into Memphis Saturday morning wrestling, and some of the angles that were run on there. And you had guys like you know Lance Russell and Dave Brown kind of holding it down as the announcers who were characters in and of themselves. I mean, Lance Russell, this this guy had the hustle and the sell. I mean, every week he made it, you know not only the in ring action interesting, but the feuds that we're developing too oh yeah yeah no that you know it, it was great and uh like you said the, the how strong that tv i mean you uh, for us to walk anywhere within memphis or i remember going to a fair one summer and man everybody knew who we were just off of that tv it was a live tv uh every saturday morning and that'd been on for years oh uh, yeah it was an institution you know and we want to talk now because we've been kind of teasing it about finally, I mean, this is another thing, another big moment in your life that occurred in wrestling in the Memphis territory was meeting up with Pat Tanaka. Now, Pat Tanaka was another one of those guys that was around. He, he worked in the territories. Of course, he had ties to the uh, the championship wrestling from Florida territory with his father and his brother who yeah. uh, who were involved yeah. with it. But, yeah. uh, you know, what, what was it like? I mean, meeting up with Pat, was it just something that you got where you guys clicked instantly? Where it was a chemistry there that worked in the ring, that showed off in the ring as well as in life? Well, what was it like to meet up with Pat? Because this was another one of those really underrated high flyers that, you know, doesn't really get his due as much when we talk about some of the guys from the past that could really uh, sell and really get it together yeah no you know uh, Pat is a great athlete and also a great worker as far as wrestling goes well you know at, at first we didn't really he, he I mean we're just kind of different as far as people I mean he's kind of a, a party animal and uh, <laughs> I wasn't uh, nearly like that but uh and as far as the wrestling goes uh yeah it was a while actually because uh, i came in there as a baby face and uh he came in as a heel and actually he wound up working a uh, a program with jeff jarrett jeff had just graduated high school and started working uh and so uh they worked that for a little while and then, you know, I was kind of at a standstill and it wasn't really a whole lot they were going to do with me as a babyface. So then uh, they decided to, to work this angle where uh, a complicated thing, it would take me an hour to explain it. But anyway, so yeah, wind up turning me heel and, uh, you know, uh, uh, myself and Pat and we worked uh, a program with Jeff Jarrett and, and Billy Travis there for a while. Uh, and actually Paul Heyman, uh, it was there at the time, but our manager was downtown Bruno. 
<laughs> that's a character in and of himself. I mean, you've I, I, I've I've seen him in action. I've read his books. I've heard stories about him. Uh, what was your downtown Bruno experience? Man, uh, it bees there sometimes. It bees that way sometimes. That was his favorite thing. <laughs> uh, Mama said it bees that way sometimes. Uh, no, nah, yeah, he was a, a different uh, kind of a dude, but. Uh, that, if, if I had my brothers, I wouldn't have picked him as our manager. Uh, but, uh, you know, that just, it was Tennessee and it was time and place and that's who they had. So that's kind of what happened. Uh, but yeah, it was after a while. So, you know, we had finally, uh, sort of decided that, uh, you know, this is going to be a, a steady tag team. So we came up with those, uh, zebra kind of, you know, pants and stuff, uh, eventually. Uh, and, uh, you know, that kind of started it all there, and, you know, we decided we were just going to uh, stay together, uh, you know, as long as uh, we uh, had a place to work. And after a while, you know, I was there for a couple of years and, you know, back close to the same, but then uh, eventually we kind of ran out of people to work with, and uh, they let us go, and, uh, you know, fortunately... Uh, Pat had a, a new Wahoo. Uh, McDaniel, of course, was booking for Vern uh, at the time uh, in Minneapolis, and uh, we were able to, uh, you know, get a, a position uh, to come up there. Yeah, and and the thing was, I mean, when you guys came up again, I mentioned it at the top here when I was giving uh, the intro. And by the way, we might as well get reset here. Uh, this is Wrestling Memories Then and Now. I'm Glenn Brockett, along with my guest this week. Paul Hard Rock Diamond, and we are talking about Paul and Pat, Bad Company, Pat Tanaka, Paul Diamond, making their way to the AWA and making a big splash on AWA syndicated and syndicated television and ESPN. Now, talk about a, a way to, 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 to make your way into the promotion. Uh, you, you, you came in, you took on a, a guy, another from you know, your old familiar friend, Sean. And you guys were like in like Flynn, man. You were the juggernaut. And boy, you broke, man, we were Midnight Rocker, Marks. Midnight, midnight Rocker fans. I was a young, like I said, I was sixth, seventh grade. And damn it, if you didn't break my heart that Saturday morning watching it. Oh, man. Tell us uh, about getting in, making it to the showboat, and, and, and basically coming in and going over. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I'm not, you know, to this day, I kind of wonder, uh, what would happen because you know we just came in and they decided right away to put the 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 belts on us so it was like two two different two tv tapings in a row one was the first one was a non-title match and and we wind up beating them and then you know uh, come back with the title match and we beat them and you know as soon as uh, that happened they left they left uh, uh the awa so I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure if that was the way to go. I think maybe we could have had a lot longer run, I think. And that they kind of felt like that, uh, as well. Uh, I wasn't about to say, Oh no, no, don't put, you know, don't put the, the belts on us. But, uh, you know, looking back at it, it, you know, may have been able to do some, uh, business for longer and would have kept them around for longer. But, uh, no, yeah, once they dropped the, the titles, uh, they were out of there. 
you know, and, and around that time too, uh, I mean, it was so obvious. You could see this the, the shadow that was cast by New York, Vince McMahon yeah. and the WWF. Oh. I mean, the talent that left the promotion in the, over the course of uh, the, the, the years before you got there, I mean, you guys were in, you were the fresh thing, but it, it wasn't that AWA that we talked about that you saw in Winnipeg back in the day as, as a young man. Yeah. This was yeah. definitely something that was moving down a peg, and it wasn't because of you guys and you know making a less than stellar effort you guys were doing the best you could but this just was a different game and it was just a different level and Vern was trying his best by keeping things alive especially you know with you know coming out and doing these big showboat tapings and 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 some of the house shows it just wasn't quite like the way it was before but no no it wasn't and you know as I was saying so once the rockers left you know uh, we were kind of left without really qualified opponents, you know, that, that, that could, uh, you know, uh, we just didn't, you know, they tried to, you know, build up, uh, Derek Dukes, Ricky Rice, Tommy Jammer. I mean, these were all young guys and I understand and they were, you know, green and stuff, but they were not names like the rockers that, uh, you know, so they tried to like bring in, other uh, people from outside of the city, like they, you know, brought in the Rock and Roll Express. They brought in the Guerreros, uh, but yeah, there just wasn't anybody there that uh, we could have somebody and work with steady, you know, in the local uh, shows and stuff. So that hurt, and you could tell, like you said, it just wasn't, uh, that just wasn't the talent that uh, Vern had had always, always in the past, and. Uh, Man, he, I, I don't know. I guess well, obviously he, you know, made uh, some errors in judgment when you know because he lost everybody that you know the, all the names that he had. That, and you were and you were involved too. You were at that time uh, before uh, you know you were you stuck around for for a good while, but you were also involved. You and Pat were still holding the ch- the, the belts during the time when uh, it was kind of a, like a, almost a similar thing, but to a lesser degree of what they tried to do uh, with the pro wrestling uh, USA project. We're bringing in various promoters. So not only did you have Vern this time around, you had Jerry Jarrett. You had uh, guys down representing a uh, world class. There was Continental yeah. Wrestling with the Fullers yeah. and Company. You got the. What was that like? To, I mean, because they brought in and you guys started doing tapings down in Memphis and or down in down in Tennessee. What was that like? Yeah. I mean, as far as uh, the vibe you guys were getting from the AWA about this 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 group, uh, you know, this consortium, this group of, of wrestling promotions, and now it's uh, more than one uh, chief uh, as far as uh, promoters trying to figure things out. Like, you know, I mean, it, it was great coming back to Memphis, but it just, you could tell, I mean, uh, still everybody was kind of, the promoters, you know, were uh, sort of for themselves, you know. Uh, we had went, uh, when when uh, Vern's territory had slowed down and they kind of borrowed us out back to the uh, Tennessee for a while, and, you know, even though we were the champions, they wanted to, you know, put people over, uh, us, you know, working there, of course, because then they could say, hey, you know, this other guy beat, you know, your champion and stuff. So it uh, it wasn't uh, really uh, <laughs> a pleasant situation. Like I said, everybody's kind of still, you know, trying to uh, do for themselves the best that they could. And it really wasn't going to work out, you know, like it's going to be all everybody together and one team. It just wasn't going to happen. Now, you went in, you were part of the AWA's last big event, uh, Super Clash 3. Now, 
what was like in you know the, the months okay I wouldn't say just the months let's say the weeks the days leading up to it and eventually just what was that vibe in the locker room that night for something that had some great guys on that card but it you I mean it just seemed like you know anything bad anything that you know could happen did happen as far as the attendance wasn't what they, what they wanted the numbers weren't good as far as subscription what was that just like to, to deal with because it was really anticipated to be this this last stand big event and it was in the pay-per-view world too yeah well i don't know who anticipated that but i you know i, I never i mean we knew it wasn't it was, we just looked at it as another show it really i i couldn't see that as uh being something uh, uh just there's no way yeah and, and- and and you you hung around uh, for for a while post uh, Super Clash three you know you yeah. ended up uh, you know with Pat you know working a mini feud with Pat Nakio yeah. before Pat Nakio took off so that was kind of a way to kind of seal put an end to to bad company but yeah. you you worked too with uh, Del Wilkes as well I did yeah so once yeah so when I stayed yeah uh, you know Del Wilkes and I had uh, tagged as a babyface tag team working the uh, the uh, wrecking crew, uh, Wayne Bloom and, and uh, Mike Venus, mm-hmm. uh, for a little bit. You know, that's when they were taping the TVs in Rochester at that point. And, but that was just, you know, I, I just uh, was kind of running out, the, uh, just working, you know, as long as I could. And uh, I saw the end was near and actually was trying to, you know, find uh, another place to go. And uh, it didn't happen until you know, uh, a while later that uh, I got a call from uh, WWF. But uh, no, yeah, so I, I mean, I saw uh, the writing was on the wall, uh, but, I, you know, just kind of uh, working until something better came along. And that better came along. I mean, uh, when you got the call to go to the WWF, and at that point, uh, you know, like I said, Akio Sato and, and Pat were doing, uh, you know, uh, their tag team thing with the original run of the Orient Express. You were working some single stuff under your own under your own name, but when yeah, when yeah, when, yeah. when yeah, what's that? Yeah. No, sorry. Yeah, they had just brought me in basically, you know, to to put people over. There wasn't really any plans, I don't think. You know, for Paul Diamond as a singles person to be anything other than maybe like a, a Barry Horowitz position. Yeah, I'd, I'd tell you, and I, you know, it was like another guy around that same time that was doing sort of that opening match, uh, second match up from the card was like an Al Perez. Yeah, and well, and you know what? Actually, Al, Al never, uh, he never agreed to uh, go on TV and, and put anybody over. So that eventually, you know, they uh, let him go. They were, I guess, I don't know if they were trying to find a gimmick for him to do or not, but uh, I was, you know, on TV, TV tapings where Al was there and he would not ever put anybody over on TV, uh, not just, you know, to, to do a straight out job like what I was doing when it first came in there. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, he eventually was released, I believe, either because they couldn't find something for him, you know, more substantial to do or because he just wouldn't do what they asked. And you were able to just uh, do to another, uh, you know, with, with Akio Sato, uh, you know, moving on to, to uh, another gig and within the company internationally, you, you were finally, uh, you know, back with Pat 
and I remember yeah. you going under the hood as Cato. So, well, you know, getting back and being able to work with, uh, you know, with Pat again and, and against the uh, various teams that the WWF had to offer, especially again, working with your, your former, uh, foes, yeah. the, the Midnight Rockers, now the Rockers. I mean, what was that like to get in with a little bit more of a, a better caliber of tag teams to be able to got to finally, you guys can work together against some top talent. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, it was great, you know, and, uh, so at that time, like you said, the Rockers, and there was the Bushwhackers. Uh, really enjoyed, you know, even though you know we just got bounced around like ping pong balls, but really enjoyed working with the LOD. And uh, you know, I think uh, everybody or anybody that ever saw any of our matches, uh, you know, with the Legion of Doom, uh, really appreciated, you know, what we did for them, and we made them look like, you know, shoot giant killers uh, nobody you know made them look that good even though you know we weren't nearly their size but they yeah we took all kinds of crazy bumps and stuff and enjoyed that uh, very much i mean if that was going to be our position and you know the best that you can do is to you know make somebody look uh as strong as uh they want him to be so yeah uh, enjoyed that, but it, and, you know, I really enjoyed working with all the tag teams. And eventually, after you know, getting through the Rockers, the Bushwhackers, LOD, there really was not enough uh, or not any more babyface teams for us to work. And that's when kind of that was the end of the Orient Express. But it wasn't the end, of, definitely not the end of your run with with WWF. I mean, oh, the, no, 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 the, no, the Max no. Moon thing really. Uh, I want to talk about how that kind of fell into your lap and uh, what you were able to do with it, and, and what was your initial uh, opinion of, of of the gimmick itself? Because this was a kind of a very unique thing uh, for the early '90s. Some of the stuff that was involved with the presentation, with your intro and the like, it was some very interesting. It, it was definitely one of the more eccentric outfits of the early 1990s for you to and the character itself. Let's talk about how you kind of got involved. And you became this Max Moon character. Just a little bit of, of a story, and I'd, I'd love for you to tell it. Yeah, well, you know, uh, obviously everybody kind of where uh, Conan was the initial was going to be uh, whatever they're going to call it. I don't know if they're going to call it something else or whatever. But uh, and and that that whole outfit, uh, man, it was like uh, it held had all these. Uh, I don't know, like shoulder pads and these uh, like leg pieces and a helmet with flashing lights and all that. And I mean, I don't know what they were thinking, but there was no way that uh, that that thing was ever going to travel. Not you know, we were working every night in a different place. That was just not going to happen. And I, I have no idea exactly what the circumstances were uh, behind all that. But uh, so Conan was there. Uh, for a little bit, he did a couple of trial runs as the Max Moon or Comet Kid or whatever they called it. And then uh, uh, I remember being one of the TV tapings, and he, you know, he didn't show up. And you know, I, nobody really said anything as to why or what. But uh, so that particular day, uh, I was talking to. They had like three sisters from Chicago that you know did all the. Uh, sewed all the uh, costumes and stuff for the guys. And I was talking to them and, and saying, wow, you know, they made you rush this thing and look at this now, you know, there's nobody to even wear it. If you make a few small alterations, I bet you I could fit into it. And we were kind of nearby Vince's office and I don't know if he heard or whatever, he opened the door and he goes, so what, what are you guys, what are you laughing about? What are you talking about? I said, oh, no, I just, you know, 
telling these girls that, you know, this Max Moon thing, you made them rush it, and now there's nobody even to wear it. And if, you know, you make a few small changes, I bet you I could fit into it. And he just kind of, ah, ha, ha, and laughed it off and, you know, slammed the door shut. And uh, we went about our, went on about our conversation. And then about a half hour later, uh, he opened the door and, and stuck his head out, and uh, I was still standing out there, and he looked at me and pointed at me and said, you come here. I said, what, 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 what did I do? And uh, he said, no, no, come here. And so he had me come into his office and he said, uh, well, you know, I thought about this, you know, what you were uh, talking about uh, earlier on. He said, you got it. It's yours. Uh, do what you want with it. He stuck out his hand and shook my hand and that was it. That's how I fell into the uh, maximum thing. So, yeah. And you made that work uh, for, for uh, all the way up until you eventually uh, left the Fed, right? Uh, yeah, I well, uh, d- didn't leave of my own uh, volition, but uh, we, we, can, <laughs> we can discuss that, I suppose. I don't know if you're aware of the, the, you know, the whole story. But, well, if, uh, if, if, if you I'll, want to, that's okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, early on um, in, I think it was 91, uh, you know, they brought in Tatanka. And uh, I was still uh, doing the Cato gimmick, but as a singles, and they just had me working with, you know, new guys, putting them over, teaching them, whatever. So uh, became kind of, you know, real good friends with the guy. He was living in Charlotte at the time. Uh, I was living in Tampa, and uh, he wanted to move to Tampa, so he had his wife fly to Tampa, met my wife, and uh, my wife had helped him find a house and stuff. It was just a couple of streets down uh and so they wound up moving there and as things went along you know the the wives became real good friends but uh his wife uh, well she uh i I guess you know he wasn't treating her real well whatever was cheating on her anyway so she kind of had got the idea possibly that you know uh there should be something between her and i and and uh so Basically, things developed, and yeah, we wound up, you know, seeing each other, having an affair for a few months, and uh, it sort of ended uh, at the at that time. They were still running two shows a night, and and Tatanka was wrestling in Orlando that night, and and uh, I was in Boston, and uh, she had uh, came to see me in Detroit the night before, and then uh, you know I told her to go home and. She decided to show up in Boston, and uh, one thing led to another, and she wound up uh, wrecking her uh, rent-a-car into a uh, cement telephone pole and kind of injuring herself pretty bad and took her to the hospital, and she wound up uh, having uh, a liver, lacerated liver and stuff. She had to have surgery and stuff. Of course, you know, at that point, everybody sort of... uh, found out that, you know, what was going on, there was a relationship between her and I. And, uh, you know, that pretty much brought things to a screeching halt uh, as far as my Max Moon career. You know, they were going to, and they had, I was working at the time with uh, Terry Taylor on the road, and uh, we were having great matches, and uh, I think there was really genuine plans for them to do something with the Max Moon thing, and they actually had a... um, the opening match for the uh, 93 Royal Rumble in Sacramento was going to be uh, T. 
Terry Taylor and myself. Uh, and, uh, you know, but uh, once this uh, took place, as I just described, uh, they canceled that match. They just put me in the uh, Royal Rumble for two minutes and um, was eliminated. And after that, uh, I didn't really work for them anymore other than it just happened that uh, Marty Jannetty had got fired. They needed somebody to replace uh, him on the European tour. I went on that. And after that, I got no more bookings. Uh, no one would speak to me. Uh, they never, you know, really specifically said, hey, this is the reason why, but uh, uh, my contract expired uh, that May, and, you know, I just got my pink slip basically without them saying anything. So that was that. How long of a, of a break was it between uh, that happening and you moving on and, and fun, getting into uh, other areas like uh, I, I, you started up, you and Pat ended up working some stuff for Eastern Championship Wrestling, which became the forerunner yeah. to ECW. Well, you know, it, it was obviously once I got my pink slip and realized that, uh, you know, that was that. So we had to go look, you know, obviously uh, for other work to try and survive. But, uh, you know, it's unfortunate... Uh, what happened and uh obviously uh stupid on my part but uh you know uh, the really uh strange things a strange thing is that um the uh, woman that i am married to right now that i married uh last year may 31st uh is that same one oh wow all's well it all eventually came Wow, that is a great ending to that story, Paul. <laughs> so, 20, you know, we basically, uh, about 27 years, uh, we each had our own lives. And, uh, you know, I, my ex-wife passed away uh, October 6th of 2016. And, uh, you know, she had got divorced and, you know, and all this. And so last year... Uh, in April, uh, she managed to uh, locate me on Facebook, and you know we started with that and started talking, and um, she came to visit, and uh, you know that sort of got things going. And it wasn't long after that, you know, we we married, and I moved out here to LA, and been out here ever since. So what is life like out for you these days? I mean, you, you talked about this uh, reconnection with this lovely lady. Uh, what What is life? What does Paul Diamond do these days to, to keep himself content? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I had to give you the Barbara Walters question. You know that, right? <laughs> my, my, my body's kind of uh, given up uh, on me. So uh, the next year or longer, I'm looking at uh, three uh, joint replacement surgeries, First one coming up here next week, August 14th. I, got, I have to have both of my knees replaced as well as my left shoulder. Uh, so, you know, I am on disability. Uh, I, my wife has done a you know, great job to push my Facebook, and uh, we've kind of worked together at that. So uh, once I am well after the surgery, I've got some uh, autograph signings, meet and greets booked and such. And so, you know, that, that basically, and she really kind of made me realize that there was still, uh, you know, a lot of fans out there that I had that, uh, you know, I was kind of uh, out of the picture for a number of years, but uh, I'm back now. We got, you know, a bunch of 
Facebook friends and uh, got a uh, fan page and, you know, pushing that as well as, like I said, uh, gladly going to uh, any and all autograph signings, meet and greet and stuff. So that at this point makes me happy. But uh, as soon as uh, I can, my body kind of recovers and I hope that'll happen and I can do some things again physically, that'll be a lot better. But for now, I'm not able to do a whole lot. Uh, and uh, just can't wait to get this first surgery out of the way, which would be the worst, and then we'll go from there. And I hope you go through with flying colors, my friend, because it'll be nice to to be able to have and get a little bit of a better quality of life. Just but you know how you're feeling right now physically. Hey, you know what? We made it to the Broadway, man. I went to Broadway with Paul Diamond. Now that's a lot to be said. And it's been a fun time chatting with you because, you know what, I think this opens the door when, when you get done, when you get through your recovery period and, and sometime down the line here to come back on the program and talk uh, a little bit more about the uh, the, the post-WWF stuff and just to kind of check in and see how you're doing, uh, just to give us an update because I think this was a fun hour. This was a, You were very open and honest and true to yourself and true to our fans, and I really just enjoyed having you here, and I, I, I can't wait to, to hear about more of your stuff on your Facebook page and your uh, fan page as well. And, and just thank you so much for uh, being patient and uh, getting uh, being able to talk with me today. It really means a lot. Well, thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure, and uh, you know, anytime I can share time with my fans, uh, I love to do that. So, yes, for sure, uh, uh, we'll keep in touch, and uh, hopefully we can uh, chat again soon. Absolutely. Well, this concludes this edition of Wrestling Memories Then and Now. For Paul Diamond, I'm Glenn Brockett. So long for now.